Let's begin. We've got quite a bit to cover, so we're going to get right into it. Uh, the title of this message is going to be Living as Citizens of Heaven. Living as Citizens of Heaven. And for those who are taking notes, there's going to be three subheadings to it. Um, mottos, measurements, and mayhem. <laughs> mottos, measurements, and mayhem. Should be a lot of fun. <laughs> so, by way of introduction, if I can use, um, I told you guys that I had been on short-term mission trips. I think it was the last time we, we got together. And I wanted to sort of use it as a, a metaphor to, as a backdrop to our study. And when I was overseas um, on mission trips, the the thing, the thing about being on short-term mission is sort of, I want to use it as um, sort of a picture of the whole of Christ, our Christian life um, and sort of a picture of, of, of everything that we are as, as Christians in the sense of, in, the, in this way, in that it has, our lives have a beginning and an end. So when you go on a short-term mission trip, there's a beginning and an end. There's a mission to be accomplished. And then you go home, right? So our lives are like this. And I want to use this sort of as a picture. And I was, when I was over there, I was, you know, we talked about, I, I remember saying uh, some things about just, you know, some of the experiences of just being exhausted. Um, you know, you're out there to do a work for, for people, to bring the gospel. Um, you're, you're sort of stripped of all your normal conveniences of life, uh, being back from, from home. Uh, definitely there's a culture shock usually involved, depending on where you go. You're, there's this, you know, a lot of different foods and languages and people dress differently and living differently. So that's sort of a thing that you kind of have to get used to. Uh, take some time to kind of sort through all that when you're in a distant land. <clears throat> but you're there to accomplish a mission and go home. And, and while I was there, it was like, you know, you feel like you're just, you're not in Kansas anymore, right? It, it, you're, you're not home and you feel like you're a citizen of another place, which you are a citizen of another place. So you never really feel like, you know, oh, I can kind of settle in here. There's never really, it doesn't seem like there's ever enough time to settle in. And so being in my young 20s at the time, I never wanted to leave. I never wanted to go back to the States. I always wanted to stay where I was. I was in Spain and Portugal and Prague a couple of times. And I always wanted to stay. But on the way home, um, there's something about going home, isn't there? You just, you just feel like you want to go home, right? And, and as much as I wanted to stay, it was nice to just be able to go home. And so with that in mind, let's look at our text. I'm going to sort of use this citizenship and going home as sort of an introduction. So let's look at our text in Philippians chapter 1. And let's read our text together. It's going to be uh, verses 21 through 30. Verses 21 through 30. And Paul says, for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with, with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So let's stop, stop there for a second. And I just want to get, I want to back up a little bit and we're going to make our way through uh, the text starting in verse, let's look at verse 20. And then we'll make our way, we'll make our way through once we get, uh, once we get into it. So he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame um, in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, <clears throat> your, your scriptures may have, you may have a, a title heading there, a chapter heading, or not a chapter heading, but sort of a, a, a in between verse 20 and 21. Is that a little bit correct? Mm -hmm. no. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, so some of you may not. So just pretend that's not even there. Okay. So we want to get it. We want to get a um, uh, an understanding. We have to go back to our prior study and understand um, that Paul is in prison. Okay. And when he, we get to verse twenty one, we have to kind of see this backdrop. Um, he's remember his great crisis and that he's kind of hanging between life and death okay and the reason i brought up mottos is when we get to this uh verse 21 here that um what it, what is a motto a motto is an overall philosophy or an outlook on life right so our nation has a uh, a motto uh some some people have personal mottos our state has a motto our national motto is in god we trust but it used to be um it used to be, uh, does anybody know? Because I took it out of my notes. Um, no, e pluribus unum. Okay. Out of the many, one. Anyone know what our state motto is? We suck. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Edited from the... <laughs> Hopefully she, we didn't pick that up. Yeah. Our state motto is Excelsior. Right. Which means ever upward, but it seems like we're ever downward in this state of New York these days. Yeah. Um, but so let's continue and 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 picture that title heading that uh, break there. Uh, that's not even there. That's not scripture. It's not those those are those were added later. Chapter verses, uh, chapters and verse numbers were added much later, and he says. But that with all boldness, Christ will even now in verse 20, as, all, as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. So this is Paul's new reality. He's given two choices. He's given two things that two um, polarizing realities, which is fruitful life. Or imminent death, right? See, we have to remember, we have to understand that Jesus did not give him a direct um, word as to what was going to happen to him. Just like when he was on his way to Rome, Jesus told him specifically that he was going to testify of him at Rome. So when he was on his way to Rome and they shipwrecked, he knew he wasn't going to die because Jesus told him that he was going to go to Rome. But it's not the case here. He does not know what's going to happen to him, okay? So, so he has these two realities, and and the and 
the two options are not given to him by any king, not given to him by the emperor. Paul knows that the two opposing, these opposing realities are in the hands of God and not a king. Paul was always looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of his faith. So Paul sort of sums up his perspective on all things. He's given these two, um, just two realities. He's either going to be acquitted and move forward and serve Christ, or he's going to be die a martyr's death. And so he says, for to me, to live is Christ. And in our modern vernacular, it really is, we would say it as, as far as I'm concerned. And he says, as far as I'm concerned, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is to go home. Remember our, remember our, um, our introduction of the short-term missionary. There's a beginning and an end. There's a mission to be accomplished, and then you go home. And that is sort of the whole of the life of the Christian. Now, when you look at verse 22, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and, it, and I do not know which to choose. Paul is not choosing his own destiny. You have to understand that. This is not like a choose-your-own-adventure comic, okay? Paul knows it's the Lord who will ultimately determine his path. But Paul wants to direct his attention. So remember, he didn't get a direct word from the Lord. So he, he wants to sort of direct his attention one way or the other. Um, sort of how can he can prepare himself for either one. So I want to paint this in, a, in an objective way and in a subjective way. So the objective, um, his viewpoint on this, whether he's going to live on and be fruitful in his ministry or he's going to die, look at verse, uh, look at chapter two, excuse me, in verse 19. So skip over a page real quick. We'll read a couple passages here. Verse 19, he says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus, listen to the language, to send Timothy to you shortly. So he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. So that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Now skip down to verse 23. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately. There's that I hope as soon as I see how things go with me. So what he's saying is at my acquittal, if I'm acquitted, I'm going to send Timothy immediately to Philippi. Okay. And now look back at chapter 2, verse 17. So go back a few verses to verse 17. He says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. What he's talking about is his martyr's death. He used the same language in 2 Timothy when he was going to be martyred. He said, I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering. And he says, but even if, you see that? He doesn't know which way it's going to go. He says, but even if. He goes, I, he says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Think of that. What a statement. That if he's going to die a martyr's death, he says, share my joy with you. Because re remember in verse 22 that his greatest passion was that he, Christ would be exalted in his life, whether by life or by death. That was his greatest focus. And so look back at verse uh, 22. Of chapter one. And let's look at the subjective part of this. And it almost sounds like Paul is sort of thinking out loud here. And but he's not thinking out loud. 
He's, he's very intentional about what he's saying. You know, we're going to see that in a moment. He says, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. And he sort of starts to begin to play a game of would you rather in his mind, right? Would I rather stay here and be fruitful for Christ? And he started kind of going through this in his mind and, and, and kind of sharing this internal struggle that he has. And look at verse 23, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. Now, when Emily used to uh, play, would you rather with me? And she'd say, dad, dad, let's play. Would you rather? And she would say something like, you know, would you rather burn to death or freeze to death? And I'd say neither. <laughs> and she'd say, no, you can't say neither. That's that. That's the whole point of the game is that you have to choose one, right? That's the whole point of would you rather. So, and then I would tease her and she'd say something else and I'd say neither. And she'd say, no, 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 you can't say that. So you, the whole point of would you rather is that you have to pick one, right? You have to choose one. So he's sort of going through this in his mind, but I want to point out that he's doing this intentionally. He says, now, now remember, he's sitting back. He's probably dictating this to Timothy, his copyist, who's writing it down. So he's going through this in his mind. And some people think he's just, he's just kind of thinking out loud of what's going on within himself. But he's doing this and saying these things to them for a reason. He says, he says, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. So, of course, he chooses the, 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 the much better part, he says, which is far greater to depart and be with my Lord than to, be, um, to, than could, to continue on. And he says, um, he says, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So what he's saying to them is this. One of the overall appeals of the book of Philippians, because of their problems that they have, they're very selfish. They have um, they've sort of splintered in their leadership. Um, they're fractured in their fellowship. And so he's addressing these issues of disunity. And He's making appeal appeal to them to die to self for the sake of others. So because he would rather depart and be martyred and be with his Lord, that's how real Christ was to him. If he was to be put to death, he would be immediately with the Lord. And he goes, that's, he says, that's far greater than anything that I can think of. Now look at Philippians 2, 3, and 4. And I want you to see this because this is very important to the overall understanding of this letter. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. You see how he's being an example to them. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So he has the desire to depart, but he's saying this is much more necessary for your sake. And so he's setting the example. He's, he's sharing his internal struggle so that he can show them what it means to put your own desires aside for the sake of others. You see? And this is why he wrote Philippians 2. And picture where we are in this text right now as almost like a hike up a mountain. And we're just about to crest the summit of this mountain. And Philippians 2, more specifically 5 through 11, is the summit. That's the peak where you can see everything clearly that you were just uh, 
you know, hiking up this mountain. Now you can see everything. And so he's leading up to this overall appeal to look to Jesus. Now, Jesus, of course, we know is the primary example of this, putting your own desires aside for others. And, and we know that he was in the form of God. Um, he set aside his privileges um, of deity for the will of his father and for the sake of others, right? And so Paul depicts this and shows this as Christ being our ultimate example. And um, Jesus pioneers this in the Gospels. He shows us what's, and we're going to get into more of this as, as we continue on, that Jesus' primary focus was the will of his father first. It wasn't what he was doing or, or necessarily, or for who it was for. It was number one to please. He says, I always do the things that are pleasing to my father. That is his first and foremost motivation. And then that always results in for the sake and benefit of others. And so this example of humility and self-sacrifice is shown to us by Christ. So this is why, what he's leading up to. Now he's sharing his internal struggle, how he wants to desire, uh, excuse me, has a desire to depart. But he says it's much more necessary for your sake for me to remain. So let's look back at our text. Verse 24, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Remember, Nero could put him to death at any moment. He doesn't know which way it's going to go. Okay. Now, let's look at verse 25. And we're going to read uh, verse 25 and 26. And we'll kind of break this down as we do our reading. Uh, convinced of this, I know that I will remain on and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. So you remember in verse 12, last time we talked about um, the gospel being pioneered and being sort of um, progressing more than what was expected when he was in, while he was in prison in Rome. Verse 12, he says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. You remember that? And the gospel advanced um, because of Paul's suffering, because of Jesus strategically placing him in prison. And that was for the greater progress of the gospel. The same word is used here in verse um, 25. And this is in terms of our personal growth. He says, I want to, he says, I, re I, I know that I will remain. I'm convinced of this, that I will remain for your progress and joy in the faith. And it's this, it's this sort of idea of this cutting through something, right? So anything that impedes progress, Paul wants to cut through that and make, make progress in back in, in, in prison. It was the progress of the gospel. Now it's going to be the progress of their personal faith. And it's a path that's cut through into picture uncharted territory, okay? And what he's saying is, is I want to continue on for your sanctification, that you will continue in your spiritual growth and not stay stagnant, but that you will progress in your sanctification, like cutting through those obstacles that hinder us in advancing in our spiritual growth. And 
the beautiful thing is, is that it, regardless, I, I don't care if you've been saved for 50 years, 60 years, there is uncharted territory in your sanctification. There is room, always room for us to grow. And Paul wants to progress and cut through where they are being stagnant. They have all of these problems and he's saying, I know that God, Christ, I believe that God's going to keep me here for your progress in your sanctification. And there's always uncharted territory in our spiritual growth. Think of it as in the, in the form of a shepherd and sheep metaphor. And the shepherd and the sheep, um, the good shepherd always takes the sheep to different places to feed, to greener pastures, right? To fresher waters because he knows it's good for them. So if the sheep stay in the same area, feeding on the same old grass, feeding from, drinking from the same water hole, right? That is not good for them. But the good shepherd, namely Jesus, always wants to lead us to greener pastures. To because the, the, the thing is, is that other place, this uncharted territory is good for us. It's good for our growth and our joy in the faith. And Jesus wants to bring us there as the chief shepherd and the good shepherd. And so if you think of it as this sheep and uh, shepherd metaphor, that the shepherd brings the sheep and they may have to terrain over some tough ground, some jagged rocks. See, there's always a risk involved in our advancement in our sanctification. And many times there is in ministry. There's always a risk. There's always some risk, but but it's always worth the risk. See, the shepherd will take the risk. The good shepherd will take the risk and take his sheep to a different, you know, he'll have to traverse over some mountain or hill. And there, you know, there's always risk of breaking a leg of one of the sheep or or slipping down into a of a, of a, of a slipping down into a ravine or something along those lines. And, but he will take that risk to take them because there's nutrition in different grasses and different fields. So this is what the good shepherd does. He never keeps them in the same place. They're always going about feeding on different grasses and then drinking from different and fresher waters and things of that nature. And so Think of it this way. This progress that we make in our sanctification is like taking us to new places. And the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, always does, does that, and, but never without risk. And we have to step out in faith and trust him that he is a good shepherd. And he will take us to those better places, those greener pastures, so that we could grow in our sanctification. Verse 26 is, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit more because he's going to, in chapter 3 and 4. But let me just say that um, he's saying that you're, you're gonna be, your proud confidence in me is going to abound in Christ Jesus. It's not because something is inept, inept, uh, excuse me, um, intrinsic to Paul. It's not that he's saying because of me in and of myself. It's because of the call of God on his life. And the gifting and the grace that he's received, that they will be, they will rejoice in him and, and how he's been used by God to bring them to these greater places. That they would live as citizens and, and honor the, the citizenship of that other kingdom that they belong to. 
And we're going to see that more in a moment. And so it's nothing, it's nothing in and of Paul that's great. He's saying, you're going to abound in Christ Jesus because of me through my coming to you again. And this is my desire, is to bring you in greater progress um, and joy in your faith. And this brings us to our second um, subheading here, measurements. Measurements. And let's look at verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, I want to point out to you that this is Paul's very first command to the Philippians in this letter. This is his very first command to them. And he says, only conduct yourselves <clears throat> in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the word that's used here is the same word that's used in chapter 3 when he says, for our citizenship is in heaven. This is where we're getting our title of this message from. Living as citizens of heaven. And our citizenship in, verse, uh, in chapter 3, verse 20, when he talks about our, their citizenship being in heaven, is the noun form, but this is the verb form, okay? So when he says, <clears throat> only conduct yourselves, what he's literally saying is, behave as citizens. Behave as citizens, live as citizens of God's kingdom, not the kingdom of this world. And so this is his very first command to them. Now remember, the Philippians took pride in their Roman citizenship. You remember that? They were all Roman citizens because they were citizens of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, and all of its citizens, all of its inhabitants, automatically got Roman citizenship. And so they took a lot of pride in that. And Paul uses this word two times here in the letter, and he plays off of that to instruct them and to exhort them. And so he literally says, behave as citizens. Um, now, we need to understand something that, and you think of it in, in terms of my short-term missionary uh, missions um, metaphor. We don't have, as Christians, we don't have dual citizenship. We only have one citizens, citizenship, and that's the citizenship of heaven. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. But far too many Christians, and we live often this way, as if we have dual citizenship. I'm a citizen of earth and I'm a citizen of heaven. When I was on the mission field, I knew I wasn't a citizen of that place. It was too weird. It was too different, right? I knew that I was a citizen of where I came from. And so, remember, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We, when we experience the new birth and we come into a relationship with Christ, we are seated with him in heavenly places. In Philippians 3, he says, For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, 
who set their minds on earthly things. Now, here's that, here's that word that he uses. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they would like nothing more to have that dual citizenship because they have privileges as a Roman citizen. And they could um, uh, set their affection upon that. But he doesn't want them to set their affection upon that citizenship. But he wants them to live as citizens of heaven. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says this, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, right, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, literally set your affections on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So we don't have dual citizenship. We have one citizenship as Christians, and that is in heaven. And Paul's saying, look, live as though you are citizens of heaven. And he says, live as though you are citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this is where we get our word measurements from. And Paul uses this language in Ephesians 4 in a slightly different context. But here he's saying, I want you to conduct yourselves, to live your life in a manner, as citizens of heaven, in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now think of it this way. You remember, uh, you picture in your mind Lady Liberty, right? She's got the blindfold on, and she has, what does she have in her hand? The scale, right? She's blindfolded. She has the scale, the two little dishes, right? One on one side and one on the other. Not the Statue of Lady Liberty. The, yeah. The, okay, that's okay. I was thinking about those. She holds the scale of justice, right? In her hand. And she's got those two little, it's got those two little dishes, one on one side and one on the other. And her scale is for justice, right? So the justice being meted out, <clears throat> excuse me. So think of it this way. So on the one side in the one little dish, you have the crime, right? And boom, it hits the, it hits the, the counter. And justice is, that's meted out is supposed, to, is supposed to meet that crime. The punishment is supposed to fit the crime. It's supposed to be worthy of the crime. And, and they're, they're to balance out the scale of justice. And notice she has a blindfold on it. It doesn't matter who it is, whether you're rich or poor, it's not supposed to matter. Whether you're a prominent politician, doesn't matter who you are, justice is to be meted out. And this is the same language that Paul uses here. A similar idea, idea in the Greek, in that the gospel is very weighty, the gospel of Christ. Think of it in that scale. And you put it on the one side and it, boom, it hits, the, it hits the floor, right? And we are to live our lives as fit or to balance out the weightiness of the gospel. That is what the idea is that he's using here. We are called to balance out the scale, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, you see. And so he's saying that, Live in such a way as citizens of heaven that you balance out the weightiness of the gospel in your life. 
And do we live this out perfectly? No. But I want to show you as, a, as an illustration. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want to use this as, an, as a way to illustrate this truth. I'm going to think of it in terms of a young woman, a young Christian woman. We'll sort of use this as, a, as, an, as an analogy to kind of paint this picture for you, what it means to balance out the scale in the life of a Christian. What is Paul saying to the Philippians? Live as citizens. Live your lives in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, you're in 2 Peter chapter 1. And let's start in verse 2. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and, our Lord, and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So he's given us all of that. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So there's that word granted again, given that as an act of his grace. So that by them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, look at verse five. He says, now for this very reason, because God has done all of this, this act of grace and giving us this uh, divine power, um, his divine power has granted to us life and godliness. He's granted to us his promises by which we become partakers of the divine nature. And he says, for this very reason, apply all diligence. And so you think of this woman, this young Christian woman, begins to take her, her Christian faith seriously. And it's with all earnestness she begins to be diligent about her faith. And let's say she's living with her boyfriend, right? And she's a Christian. She professes Christ. And she begins to sort of say, you know, I need to live differently. And Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter says, in this diligence, in this earnestness, supply moral excellence. Well, what does he mean by that? She begins, or this person, this woman, begins to supply moral excellence. It's repentance of sin. Let's use this, this story of her. She's living with her boyfriend. She's, she wants to take her faith seriously. And now she applies moral excellence. And she begins to practice repentance of sin. Maybe she moves out of the apartment, right? And think of the scale now that I painted for you. The gospel, boom, so weighty, right? And when she's adding these things to her faith, it's like adding a little bit to that, that dish on the other side. Ka-clink, right? And it may not put it a dent in it yet, but she, he says, add this moral excellence, this repentance of sin. And then he says, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. And maybe she begins to start attending that Bible study that she, one of her girlfriends, her Christian girlfriends, may have been inviting her to for months, maybe even years. And she said, I'm going to start going to that Bible study. And she starts applying and attaining knowledge. Kuklink, you see, she's beginning to walk worthy. 
And, and he says, in your knowledge, self-control. Now, we know that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And she begins to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, right? She chooses to stay pure. Kuklink, you see, she's adding to her faith, walking worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the scale begins to start to balance out. And he says, in your self-control, perseverance. And her perseverance, she begins to suffer a little bit better as a Christian. The things that she goes through, she starts looking to God for her answers. Instead of, instead of going back to her old ways, she begins to trust in the Lord. Instead of going back to her old ways of coping and falling back into sin, you see. Kuklink, right? She begins to start trusting in God. And so this is what the, sort of a picture of what it means to begin to balance out that scale. And we could continue and go on and on through this. But I just wanted to use this as sort of that picture of what does Paul mean when he says walk worthy? We begin to take our faith seriously and we begin to add to our faith. Now, someone might say legalism. You're talking, you're preaching legalism. You know, all this stuff, you're all this doing stuff. What do you mean? Listen, the difference between legalism is trying to earn God's grace. You have to understand the difference between legalism and obedience, right? Legalism is trying to earn God's grace and acceptance, but we already are accepted in the beloved. So after our salvation, the exhortation of the apostles and the writers of the New Testament now is to work it out. Live out your faith that God has worked in. Now begin to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, right? Put your faith now that you have into practice. It's not legalism. It's obedience. Paul is saying, balance out the weightiness of the gospel by living as citizens of God's, God's kingdom, not as citizens of this world. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you remember um, Mark Choma's sermon a couple of weeks ago, that he, he pointed out in Romans how Paul was saying that, that God has given us all of this grace, right? He's given us this great salvation, and we can never pay it back, right? We, there's no way that we could ever pay this beautiful, amazing gift that God has given us. But he um, pointed out to us that our obligation now is to walk by the Spirit. That is what we are obligated to the Lord to, not to ever pay our salvation back, but to walk now not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. So it's not legalism, as Peter's laying this out, adding to your faith. This is obedience. And we see that analogous in that life of that um, Christian woman who begins to then work out her salvation. And she begins to balance out the scale in her faith. So we'll turn back with me to uh, uh, Philippians chapter 1. And so we continue on. And he says, only conduct yourselves, live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see you uh, and see you or remain absent, 
There's that. He's not no doesn't know what's going to happen to him. I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And we have to um, understand a couple of things about this passage. He is saying he is he is exhorting the Philippians because of their issues that they have. They have they're selfish um, in their uh, ministries. They're splintering off. Remember when he addressed the whole letter at the very beginning to the overseers and deacons? That is very unique. The leadership had tremendous problems and they were kind of going their own way, doing their own thing. Remember Judea and Syndicate in chapter four, he points out two specific women who had, there was a rift in the leadership, really. They were prominent women in the church and there was a rift between them. And so he keeps pressing this issue of disunity, selfishness, selfish ambition. So he's saying, look, when, if I come and see you or, or remain, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit because you are living as citizens, right? You're, you're citizens of another kingdom. And you're, you're striving with, uh, excuse me, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We are not to be competing with one another. Right in our ministries, this is weird. You have to look at Christianity as sort of locking arms with a bunch of people, right, and doing ministry together, not competing, but working together toward a common goal. It, this word is actually used in um, in um, to describe athletic contests, and I thought about this and that Christianity in is not like golf, right? It's not or tennis, <laughs> where it's a one-man sport. Christian, our Christian faith is like football or basketball or Amen. hockey. Amen. Amen. <laughs> where the goal to in order to accomplish the goal, you have to work together as a team. As Christians, we're not to stand alone in isolation, but to be united in spirit with one mind in the faith. And what happens a lot of times is people come into the church and they have this camaraderie of faith and common belief amongst one another. And then they go off into their separate ministries. And that can be problematic in, in some ways. And I'm not saying it's always wrong. It's just that we are to further the faith of the gospel together. That's what the beauty of the body of Christ is. We are part of one body. In Ephesians 4, he says, he says be dil being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. There is only one body of Christ. And so we are to strive together in our ministries, not in a fractured and splintered way, like the Philippians were. And far too often in our Western form of Christianity, we value this individualism, right? This individualistic kind of, I have my ministry that I do. And it's not necessarily wrong, and I don't want to paint it in a broad brush judgment, but I do want to, I do want to bring out a couple of questions to consider when it comes to um, what we would call parachurch ministry. Um, and 
you you see this kind of like thing out there with the, you have the person's name and then ministries, right? So and so's ministries, and it may not necessarily be wrong, um, as long as they are linked and supported by a local body of believers. If they were not to go rogue in our ministries in the local uh, in a body of believers, we are to remain under spiritual authority and accountability to the local church body. So some questions that I think need to be considered, considered is why isn't my ministry linked and supported to the, by the local church? And maybe was there maybe a sin issue that led to my ministry? And so there's, there's a number of things that could be at play here. And as I said, I'm not judging it with a broad brush. But I do want to touch on this because Paul touches on it, that they're to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And maybe some of these individual ministries are linked to a local church. And maybe they are supported. Maybe it was better off for them to use their personal name. I'm not saying that it's necessarily sinful. But I am saying what often leads to parachurch ministry can be sinful. Such as, and think of Philippians in the bigger picture of this. We lack many times love for one another. We lack unity with one another. Remember, we're to lock arms together. We major on the minors and minor on the majors with regard to one another. So then we're fractured and not doing ministry together. We have selfish ambition and maybe simply just prideful and thinking too highly of ourselves. Remember, Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You see that? And look out for others' interests, not just for your own interests. And so we today we have all kinds of different things. We have podcasts and video blogs and Christian books and all this stuff. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. But what led to you doing something apart from the body was their sin there. And that's what I want to touch on. But I also want to say this. Now, there's many bigger parachurch ministries out there, right? You got Campus Crusade or World Vision, uh, Samaritan's Purse. These are a parachurch ministry is essentially just uh, conducting ministry outside of the local body. Probably should have said that in the beginning. But. Some of these get really, really big, and they and they operate separate with separate finances and separate and all of that kind of thing. And it doesn't mean that they're not necessarily linked to the local body. But what I am saying is that people need to examine their heart and their ministry. Are they linked? Are they submitted under the authority that God has given and provided in the local church and, and, and accountable? We see this in so many different areas and so many different big names that went down because they were not linked and supported by the local church. And Paul's saying, strive together for the faith of the gospel. And, and one might say, well, you can't just, you know, these big, big parachurch ministries, they can't just be linked to any one local church. And that's true. But, but ask yourself those questions. The leaders of these movements have to ask those questions. Are we accountable? Are we submitted to authority? And... Sometimes the other side to this is that sometimes the local church goes rogue and gets involved in things 
that aren't gospel focused and doesn't recognize the gifts that are in its midst to further the gospel and meet the needs of the community. So I think many times parachurch ministry can sort of be a necessary, necessary evil, if you will, in that the local church fails to do its job and God may be accomplishing his will by another way. And that could very well be the case as well. But the point of this passage is to the Philippians and to us is to link arms, strive together for the faith of the gospel, examine yourself, make sure that what you're doing is not because of a sin issue of disunity, of being unloving, of not being able to work out differences, things of that nature. We are to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And this is the whole crux of Paul's appeal to them because he understands what's, what's problematic in their church and what's causing them to, to stop growing. Right? So this leads us to our, our, our final heading here is mayhem. And mayhem, it's not like God is like a, God is not uh, like an all state insurance agent. Okay. <laughs> He's not protecting us from mayhem. And I want to point out the fact that it's through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. So let's look at verse 28. And this all ties in together. In no way alarmed by your opponents, so there's to strive together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. Let's continue reading. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. The problem with the Philippians is that they were not suffering well. And their suffering and their persecution, this is what was causing the splintering within the fellowship this splintering the, uh, and fracturing within the leadership. They were not suffering the way that God would call them to suffer by faith. And he addresses this and he says, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them and of salvation for you and that too from God. Their opponents, those who are opposing the gospel and the faith of the, faith of the gospel. And he makes this sort of, um, this contrast between salvation and perdition. And that um, as we walk in unity, as, as when we are unified as Christians and we're walking um, courageously for Christ in the face of opposition and persecution, then that becomes proof positive to those who oppose us that God is going to destroy our enemies and his saints will be delivered. It becomes a sign, a proof that they are the enemies of God. So who are the Philippians' opponents? Um, there's three main categories of the Philippians' opponents. And this is what was causing the suffering, and this is what was causing the fracturing in the church. And the three main opponents are these. The Roman pagans of Philippi, false teachers, and false Christians. The Roman pagans of Philippi. Remember those who opposed Paul and stirred up the riot in Philippi? Remember, there's no, um, there's no uh, synagogue in Philippi. And 
the pagans, the Roman pagans, they were they worshipped all kinds of gods. And we don't know what to degree that they were persecuting the Philippians, but we do know that that persecution was ramping up at this time. It didn't get to a fever pitch until 64, after the great fire of Rome in 64. This writing is about 61 to 62. And so, but there was becoming a more increasing intolerance for these Christians. And Christians were seen as uh, um, superstitious. They were the sect of Judaism that was very superstitious, practiced strange rituals, um, especially at night. You know, the church didn't immediately, they didn't meet in the Sunday mornings until later on. They used to meet in the evening and they would often stay in fellowship throughout the night. And so this was perceived by the general public as just very strange and weird. So there was this growing um, intolerance toward them, but we don't know to the degree that they were being persecuted. We we can hearken back to um, when Paul was there. When they stirred up the riot, they grabbed him and Silas and beat him, falsely accused him, threw him into prison and all that stuff. Um, but there was also the Philippians were not, uh, the Christians were not towing the line per se, religiously, as good Roman citizens should. And so there may have been threats to turn them in. They were wor- worshiping Greek gods at the time in, in, in this area. Um, remember, it's a Roman colony. So they had temples dedicated to, dedicated to Roman emperors that they were worshiping, ro- dead emperors, uh, Greek gods, local deities, Asian deities, very pagan worship going on. I'm going way over 53. Okay. Um, and my wife, of course, uh, <laughs> reminded me of that. So... They, so this is their main, I, what I want to point out is that this is their main uh, opposition that they have and the false teachers and the false Christians. And many times uh, we don't t- typically talk about fa- false Christians as being in opposition to believers, but Jesus talked about them, didn't he? He talked about the tares among the wheat, that they can often, uh, what happens is they often oppose genuine Christian living. And so this is some, one of the things that they were contending with. Um, so let's continue on. And he says, uh, for verse uh, 29, for to you it has been granted to not only believe in Christ, Christ, but to also suffer for him. And we don't typically think of um, suffering, of course, as being granted to us. We, this word granted comes from the Greek word that is translated grace, kairis. The, the word is kairizomai. We have been granted not only the faith to believe in Christ, but also we've been granted to suffer for him. And as I said, we don't often think of his suffering as something to, uh, it's, it's often something to be avoided and escaped, right? And when we look at our Lord, though, we begin to follow in his steps. When, we, when it means to follow Christ, to live as citizens of another kingdom, we begin to realize that this is the way of the Christian. It's the way of suffering. And what Paul is saying is to them is you need to suffer well as Christians for the purpose of sanctification. Remember, Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Right. We're not taking up a literal cross. The cross 
The work of the cross is finished. It's a finished work. But we follow in the way of suffering. Remember, Paul said, um, it is through great tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. And so, but we want we don't want that. We want to skip the suffering part and go right into glory, right? In our Western way of thinking, we want, we want to live the American dream and then be ushered into God's kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. But remember what Paul said. He said in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And we don't have time to get to uh, Hebrews chapter 12 to illustrate this. But it is our, in our suffering is an act of grace. The things that we go through, the difficulties of life, is an act of grace toward us in that God uses it to sanctify us, to grow us. We are to endure suffering. The word literally means, the word hupomone literally means to remain under. We are to remain under the difficulty and suffering as Christians because it is the purpose of God in which which is God's discipline to us, which leads to holiness, which leads to sanctification. And so let's look at verse 30. It says, experiencing the same same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And what Paul is saying to them is this, and we'll close with this, is that Paul is telling them, telling the Philippians, he's saying, see how God's kingdom advanced through my suffering. Remember, it's in, in prison when he was in, uh, when he is in prison. But he, the example in, in the story that he told about how the gospel had advanced, right? And he, it advanced through the ranks of the Roman military and up to, even up to Caesar's household. And he's saying, listen, if you suffer well, understand that God is using that to do something in you and to do something through you. That the gospel, in, he's saying in my example, it, uh, God, the suffering, advanced the gospel, right? Remember his, all that he went through in Philippi. And he was, as we said, he was beaten. He was imprisoned. And he's saying to them, look, the church was born out of that, right? This is a gift. This is God's grace leading to greater things. And that was their problem. They were not suffering in a way that was, they were, their response to suffering was sinful. And he's saying, I want you to suffer like I suffered. I want you to experience it and respond the way I did so that the gospel can advance and that God's will in you can advance in your sanctification and in your spiritual growth. And so we've seen Paul saying, look, live as citizens. Take those risks with the good shepherd, right? As we pointed out, experience that uncharted territory in your sanctification and spiritual growth. And he says to them also, live as citizens and walk in a manner worthy of that citizenship and balance out the scale of the gospel of Christ. And finally, he says, live as citizens and suffer well for the sake of your Lord who suffered for you, that God's purpose and sanctification will be fully accomplished. Brethren, live as citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word, Lord. Thank you for um, these things that we were able to uh, dive into. Lord, thank you for 
um, that you are the good shepherd, that you are the shepherd of the sheep of your pasture. And you just you desire to take us into um, new places and 